You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're concluding our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from the book of Matthew. We've called Firm Foundation. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. I was asked a question years ago, having grown up in South Louisiana along the Gulf Coast, uh, and then moving to Texas, I was asked the question, would you rather be in a tornado or a hurricane? My choice would really be neither. Um, now, I, I got to tell you, having lived through both, tornadoes drop out of the sky. There's no running from them. Uh, there's no way to plan for them or, or recognize how to get away from them. I will tell you, when you're from South Louisiana, though, part of what you learn in your elementary school program, and we did this every year, Every bank, every news station would print out little hurricane maps. And so when there would be a hurricane that would enter the Gulf of Mexico, they would distribute the maps and we would go in class and part of the assignment was to track them, the latitude and the longitude. And you knew if it was coming to you, you'd just get in the car and drive, right? You'd just drive away. But what those storms have in, in common, and some of you, I would assume, have been in a tornado. Some of you have been in a hurricane, maybe. I would guess some of you have had the experience of losing a home in those things. What I know is this, it's devastating. It's devastating to have something come in and take away that place that has typically probably been your oasis, some place that was safety, some place that represented family. Remember after Hurricane Katrina back in 2005, Ellen and I going back and driving through the city where she grew up and where we had so many memories created there and seeing the church where we got married uh, was, was flooded and really uh, affected by that. Home after home, driving through that. Ellen's parents had water in their home from that time. Even the hurricane two years ago put a 60-year-old tree through the center of my in-law's house, and it just devastated and destroyed the house. Those kind of things happen. And when we see those things happen, there's a sadness that's there. We see the impact of weather, and we see the impact of the storm. All those homes, those buildings, they were built to last, right? They were built to be there to withstand whatever elements there were. And if you think with me about what is represented in those homes, there's some homes that have tough memories, for sure. Some tough things that you had to maybe grow through. Memories where things broke you, maybe. I also think about the memories where we came together, where we grew, where there had those opportunities. Maybe you brought a newborn child into that house. Maybe there was a pet that you loved that you brought into that home. And to just see that home destroyed, that physical structure that was intended to last and withstand was suddenly gone. And yet we recognize that as grievous as it is to see some structure blown away, how much worse is it if there was a life of a loved one that was in that home? Because while those things were built to last, human life was built to last as well. And so we have those moments where we reflect on those things. And I think that it's with that backdrop that Jesus brings us to this point in the Sermon on the Mount today that I encourage you to open up your copy of Scripture to Matthew chapter 7. The passage that we're studying today is the final passage uh, in his Sermon on the Mount. If you were to just read it through, it would take 18 minutes, maybe 20 minutes to read through Matthew 5, 6, chapters 5, 6, and 7. 
But we're on our 12th week of studying it, and we're going we're gonna to wrap up the study this morning. But what we know is this, everything has built to this point. That we've gotten to this point, not as individual lessons, because like I said, for Jesus, it's just one sermon. And so when we put this passage in context, I think there is something unique that he wants to say to us this morning. So with that said, recognize we began this in Matthew chapter 5 with what is known as the Beatitudes. And if you were here with us, and you can go back and listen to or watch all of these messages... But it began with this idea where over and over and over again, blessed is the person who. How blessed, how favored is this person that has this characteristic, and then there's a promise that gets attached to it. And so you think about the listeners that were there. We talked about these disciples, that there were some people there that were probably curious. They're just looking into Jesus. Who is he? What is he saying? He's saying some pretty uh, pretty strong things. And they're just checking that out. There's also uh, that you move from that curious role to the convinced role. Okay, he's who he says that he is. I don't, I don't know that I'm ready to follow him, but I recognize there's something different about him. And then somewhere faith takes over and you come to faith. And you become that, that disciple who is convinced that he's who he says that he is and they become committed disciples. Now, Lord, what you say is what I'm going to do. You're going to call the shots in my life. All the way to the, to the commissioned disciple that says, Lord, I'm going to be used for your purposes in this world. You got all four of those disciples, and they follow Jesus up the hill, and he starts talking about these beatitudes. And then he gets to a part where he says something that says, you know what? In this world, I've got plans for you. I want you to be salt in a world that is bland. In a world that is decaying, I want to use you as a preservative in this world. And I also want to use you as light in this world because this world is dark. So I want to use you to be salt and light in this world. And then he comes to this statement, which would have hit them, I think, really hard. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Now, mind you, you had your idea, if you were Jewish, of who Messiah was going to be, what he would bring to the table, and probably, and probably hoping that he was going to release you from some of the difficulties that following the law and the prophets would have put on your life. It wasn't always easy. And Jesus steps up and says this, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. You can almost imagine going, ah, oh, we were hoping that was what you were going to do. We were hoping you were going to release us from this. And he says, I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Somebody can fulfill the law. Somebody can fulfill all of those requirements. All of a sudden, you went from saying, I was hoping you would abolish them or do away with it to, wait a minute, you did it. And he moves out of that, and he moves to these words where he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, you got to recognize, the scribes and the Pharisees were the professional good people, right? They were the ones that had figured out the way to try to live out the law. They took all the law, and they kind of built it into a system that was manageable, kind of bite-sized chunks. They were, okay, we're going to do this. It's going to be very behavioral. So you're just going to grin and bear it, and this is what it costs you to walk with the Lord, just fulfill these things. And, and truthfully, they took some things to the best of their ability and tried to make them manageable. Jesus is about to expose them. They don't know that yet. But recognize that for every listener out there that heard Jesus say, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, I think the listeners look around and say, you've got to be kidding me. 
You want me to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees? They're the professional good people. And you think we can beat them? I'm sure a lot of them thought, peace out, man. There's no way I could do that. And then Jesus finished his sentence. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. That's what's at stake? That's what's at stake? If I, my righteousness cannot exceed the behavioral faith of these scribes and Pharisees, you're telling me I got no chance? Well, those are Jesus' words. So against that backdrop, he starts casting a vision for what a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees might look like. So he begins walking them through, and you can go back, like I said, and listen to all of these messages. But he started talking with them about what life would look like. This is how it would change your relationships with other people. If you have this, um, this righteousness that would exceed or surpass the scribes and Pharisees, what might it look like? Well, then he says, well, this is how it would affect your relationships. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. And there are probably some people like, yeah, 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 I'm pretty good. I'm okay with that. And he says, but I'm here to tell you, if you hate your brother, if you call your brother a fool, then you committed murder in your heart. And all of a sudden, oh. See, now all of a sudden our faith, it's not just that it was behavioral. Now it went from behavioral to inside. Because all of a sudden the things that we were thinking or doing on the inside that nobody else used to know about, Jesus says, no, that's what it looks like. That's what it applies like. And so then he started talking about uh, adultery and he talked about lust, he talked about marriage, he talked about divorce, and he went through all of these things. Okay, so it's gonna revolutionize our human relationships. And then he said, you wanna know what it's gonna do to your relationship with the Lord? It's gonna change that too. Because up until now, it was easy for you to maybe give or to pray or to fast in such a way that the world would applaud you. Oh, man, you're such a good giver. Man, that was a good prayer. Way to pray. And Jesus says, I'm here to tell you, is if you want to impress people with your prayers, then you keep praying the way you do. But it doesn't score you any points with the Lord. Because the Lord says, when you pray, I want, I want to be your attention. I don't want that to be your attention. And so then he started talking about what it would look like to have our relationship with the Lord be transformed. That would be a righteousness that would surpass what the scribes and the Pharisees did. We're moving away from external behaviors, and we're moving to something way deeper. Then he looked up and said, you know what? So what does it look like to walk in this world? And then he said things like this. You have an option to seek things that are temporal and here on earth or things that are eternal up in heaven. So where do you want to invest your resources? You want to invest your resources here? Or do you want to invest your resources up above? Recognizing that the Lord meets all of our needs. So we don't need to walk in this daily anxiety about will the Lord provide for our food and clothing? No, the Lord has that. He says, I'm going to take care of you. So he started talking to us about that. And then he said, hey, and recognize the gate into this way of life is going to be very narrow. And there's going to be false teachers that try to get you off the path well, how will I know? And he said, well, look at the fruit. Look at the fruit on the trees. That's how you're going to know. And so he goes through all of these things, and he brings us to our passage where we are today. Like I said, this isn't a 12th lesson in this sermon. This is the end of this message of this sermon. And as we turn to this, I am going to tell you, I think I was taught this passage wrong my entire life. And you may come to the same conclusion, or maybe y'all all had better Bible teachers than I had. But when I come into this passage today, and I will come back and address that later in the message, the message or the way that I always taught it 
Those are spiritual truths that are true. I just don't think this passage teaches them. So with that said, I invite you to turn with me into Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. Jesus says this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Over and over again, we see this terminology. There's this active reality in this passage, and it goes back, he begins it in the previous section too. Doing, doing. Matter of fact, in the previous section, when he uses the word doing, it's the word where he talks about a tree bearing good fruit. The idea is doing. And so when we come to this, recognize that he's taking us back to this idea. He's brought us together through all of this passage, and he wants us to focus on doing what he has said. Is this behavioral Christianity? Well, no. Well, sounds like it. No, because he's talking about this transformation of the heart, is that we would yield ourselves to what the Lord is saying and doing. The idea that we step back and say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And so I act upon what he is calling me to do. It's not that I'm trying to do it myself. It requires a transformed heart, as he's explained through chapter 5, chapter 6, and got us to this point. There's a value in doing what you hear. And that's not new. That's always been true of God's people, right? So when we go back to Deuteronomy 28, we read these words. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord... If you hear something and you won't do it, or you won't be careful to do all of his commands to say, how much of it? All of it. All of it. The part that you and I might look around and think, I don't need this. This doesn't really apply to me. That, I, I hear what he's saying. I don't really, if he only knew my circumstances, if he only understood the pressure I was under, he would know that that's just not appropriate to ask me to do that. If you will not obey, if you will not be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command to you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you, okay? I've said it a lot of times. You can choose your behaviors. You can't choose your consequences. You want to choose to not hear. You want to choose to not obey. Then you're going to face consequences. That was true for God's people in Israel. But the opposite's also true. We see that in Joshua 1. Only be strong, be very creative, be careful to do according to all of the law, all of it. I don't get to pick and choose. No, do all of it. That, my Mos- uh, that Moses, my servant, commanded you, don't turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. We've talked about this before, the idea that you walk around, it doesn't depart from your mouth. Lord, you're calling me to do this. I'm going to do this. You say do this. This doesn't make much sense to me, but you call me to do it. You're the Lord. I'm not, so I'm going to step into this, and I'm just going to do it. I don't get it. I don't understand it, but I'm going to do it. It's not going to depart from my mouth, but because I'm going to meditate on it day and night so that, you, that I may be careful to do according to all that's written in all of it, his counsel for me, this whole book, his counsel for me and for you, for then you will make your way prosperous 
and then you will have good success. Prosperity gospel? No. He's going to walk with you. You're going to feel his presence. You're going to feel his blessings. He's going to be engaged with you. You're going to be tied into him. You're going to be empowered by him. You're going to feel his favor in your life. Well, is that just Israel? Well, no. Paul picks up the same idea in Romans 2 for the New Testament church. This is for all of us. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law, those who actually take it in and then act upon it, okay? It's more than just taking in the words, it's living it out. James talks about it this way. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Is that there's no value. Could you imagine if you just put on headphones and went to bed every night with the audible Bible playing in your headphones? There's no, I don't know that there's a ton of value in that. No, because the idea is that we take in the word of the Lord and it begins to shape the way we live. James goes on, and I I love his metaphor here when he says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, if all we do is take it in, but we doesn't transform the way we move, act, live our lives, he's like a man. Now, the word there is male. I mean, it is a male. This isn't generic like humankind. This is male because to our male credit, the only people who could go look in a mirror and forget what they look like would be a man, right? <laughs> the person who only hears and doesn't do is like a man, a male who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he looks like, right? But the one who looks into the perfect law See, we didn't need to abolish the law. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law was perfect. The problem was never the law. The problem was our inability to fulfill the law. The perfect law, the law of liberty and perseverance being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Because it was never intended to be the role where we could go and look in a mirror and talk around, you know, okay, my nose is there, my ears are there, I'm good, and turn and walk away and think, I forgot what I look like. That was never the goal. The goal is that we would go to the mirror to look and we would see and then we would act in accordance with what we saw. That's what the scripture did for us. Now, let's go back to our passage. In this culture, you would have believed that hearing, if you truly heard, you would act, okay? We are the people that have come up with the idea that you could hear and not act. We would call that listening, and I'm gonna make that distinction throughout this, that if you hear, it compels you to act, but you can listen, hear something, and just disregard it, okay? So let's come back and look at our passage. Everyone there who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. You've not truly heard until you obeyed. And so now all of a sudden, we've got a definition. We've got a wise man. That wise man is this person who has a sense of comprehending the situation and does what Jesus commands. Wisdom says, I've heard what you've said, and now I'm going to act upon it, okay? Based on this passage, that's where the distinctive comes from. Another commentator says it this way, the wise man is he who does the will of the Lord. The foolish man, which we're going to talk about more in a second, refuses obedience. Hence, the idea behind the wise and the gospels may be summarized as this. The believer's wisdom lies in his obedience. Now, think with me. We shouldn't be that confused by that. If you know the Lord and you say, he's sovereign, I'm not. He's the creator, I'm not. He's omniscient, I'm not. He's already in tomorrow. He's into next week because he lives in the eternal present. 
You and I are localized here right now. The wise person has the capacity to say, Lord, you have spoken, you have spoken truth, you have spoken within your omniscience, you have spoken within your eternal present, and you've asked me to do this. The wise man says, you're God, I'm not, so I'm going to follow what you ask of me. Anybody surprised by that definition? Because I think that's what Scripture is trying to tell you, that it is this practically wise, sensible, thoughtful, prudent reality, that we would obey what the Lord says. Now, within that, look what happens to this person. You find this person who builds their house on the rock. It's the person who hears is wise because they do what the Lord says. And then the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall. Didn't fall. It's a full-on weather assault. It's got everything in there. 2016, we were living in Louisiana, and a flood wiped out South Louisiana, and it started a breach in a dam up in Mississippi. And so we knew the water was coming. You just didn't know how much, how fast, or when it was going to get there. And for some friends of ours in our church, they found themselves in a position where they knew it was coming. The announcer's saying, you guys need to get out. He looks out, he looks up the land, and he sees the water beginning to come, and he can hear it. And he's watching trees bend as the water's coming. He runs inside, tells his wife, gets their child. They load up what they can in some containers, and they throw it in the back of his truck. In the meantime, as quickly as that was, minutes, 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 he is in there in his huge Ram 2500 series four-wheel drive truck trying to drive, and the water is pushing his truck off the road. When the water comes, it is swift and it is powerful. This person is doing what the Lord asks of them. This person is wise. They built their house, it is on the rock, and recognize the storm still comes. That person is facing this assault of weather. Now, so often we can say, well, the person who walks with the Lord doesn't have these kind of things. That's not what this passage says. That passage doesn't say that at all. This passage says that when all that came, look at the end of verse 25, it did not fall. It was able to withstand the assault that the weather was hitting them with. But that's not everybody. Because look with me at verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, now there's your difference, right? Everybody heard these words. The wise builder does obey. The foolish builder does not. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Now let's stop for a second because I want to go back to what fool is. Because if the wisdom is a person who has this applied knowledge that takes what they know, it's prudent, it's sensible for them to fall. Sensible, right? He's God, I'm not. If he says do this, then I do this. That's sensible. The foolish person is this person. The, word, the Greek word for fool actually transliterates into English as moron. How great is that? If you will allow me to just do it this way, I'm not trying to be overly harsh or mock this poor moron, but we're going to in a second. And then you can decide if this ever applies to me or to you. The fool is defined as the adverse person who hears but fails to practice Jesus' teaching, okay? Now, come back and let's look at our passage. 
And everyone who hears these words of mine, Jesus speaking, everybody who hears my words and does not do them is like a moron. Now, think with me. I mean, that's kind of bold, Jesus. I mean, that's kind of brash. And he's like, really? I'm the sovereign. I'm the creator. I'm eternal. I'm omniscient. I'm omnipotent. I'm omnipresent. I'm speaking to you to tell you how to live in this life, and you sit back and say, I don't know that I want to follow you. Guess what? That's a fool. Transliterates moron. And by the way, let's talk about a moron who would actually build their house on the sand. Now, I got to tell you, when I was talking with some of the guys on staff about trying to find pictures, because I was like, you know what? I could show you pictures from what happened after Hurricane Katrina as Ellen and I drove through the city. You know what? We saw a whole lot of houses destroyed. We saw a whole lot of homes that had been washed off of their foundations. You know what we didn't find? We didn't find anybody that built their house on sand. Nobody does that. And so this person is such a fool that he said, you know what? You built your house, but your plan was flawed from the beginning because you actually built on sand. Nobody does that. And so within that foolishness, look what happens. So this person with the same information The difference was they didn't obey when the wise person did, but look at the storm, verse 27. Now, if you can look at verse 27 and 25 simultaneously, I want you to catch this. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. It is the same weather assault as hit the other house. That's why we know that whatever this storm is, it hits everybody the same way. It's not that some people have better storms, worse storms, stronger storms, more severe storms. These storms hit everybody. That's where we're going with this. The rain fell, the the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. It's the person that took this and said, okay, I started building. Now, let's take it back into the message where we've been, right? Jesus starts, and he says, you know what? I'm coming to fulfill the law. I'm not abolishing it. There's nothing wrong with the law. You needed the law to understand who I am. But know this, you need a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Because the problem with your scribes and your Pharisees is they're teaching you that you don't have to obey what I'm telling you. They've put it into bite-sized chunks. They've tried to make it manageable for you so that you can have this behavioral faith. You know what? I'm pretty good. I mean, uh, there's probably there are some people better than me, like the scribes and the Pharisees. But overall, I like my chances on judgment day. I kind of feel pretty good. I'm more good than bad. I'm better than so-and-so. Look at how I pray when I pray. Look at how I fast. Look at how I give. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't done any of these big sins And Jesus keeps taking it deeper and deeper and deeper. That's why Dallas Willard referred to something called the gospel of sin management, which is an interesting term because gospel translates into the good news. The good news of sin management, which isn't really good news at all, that you and I would live our lives trying to just manage our sin behaviors. We can't manage our sin behaviors. Think with me about how many, maybe you're the great person. How many of us are great at New Year's resolutions? And how long do they last? Because what you and I both know is, man, it's really hard to transform a life, isn't it? For a season, you know what? I'm not going to call my brother a fool for the next week. Week two, all bets are off. It's all those things build up inside of us, and we can try to manage it. But man, it sure is hard because what we know is we're going to crater. Willard in that statement comes back and says this, 
If gospels of sin management are preached, which is all the scribes were preaching, which is what all the Pharisees were preaching, it's what so many of our pulpits across America are preaching, it's all that the world can ever preach if they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, then Christians are gonna believe that it's all about managing my sinful behaviors. Let me just put them all in check so I can beat those things down so they don't come up like it's whack-a-mole. Let me whack-a-mole all of my sin. If gospels of sin management are preached, and that's what Christians will believe, and those in the wider world will reject that gospel. What gospel? The gospel of sin management, because what, and they'll believe that what they've rejected is the gospel of Jesus Christ himself, when in fact they've never heard it. Because we're so busy trying to tell people, hey, whack a mole with your sins, knock it out, control it. That's all the Pharisees and the scribes were trying to do, which is why Jesus is completely rejecting everything about it. He took their world that seemed really great and he turned it upside down. If you see analogy several times in here, the idea of trying to climb the ladder only to find out that when you get to the top of the ladder, you're on, it was against the wrong wall. And he's looking at him and he's saying, you, you've missed the boat. See, when they first started talking about, okay, it's murder, but it's really better not hate somebody, I'm sure they thought, oh, the ladder just got taller. Jesus said, no, it didn't get any taller. The, law, the ladder's perfect. The problem isn't the ladder. The problem is this heart of yours and mine because you and I can't live it out the way we were intended to live it out. So now, come back to our passage. The foolish person, the moron, has a lot to say about this, doesn't he? The book of Proverbs spends a great deal talking about foolishness. Matter of fact, it chronicles the journeys of five different types of fools. And there is a, uh, a growing foolishness in, in each of them. The first being the naive. Is they probably should have known better, but they didn't. And it rises all the way up to the level of the scoffer, the one who would rebuke uh, and laugh and scorn. That's who this foolish man is. Maybe, maybe it's a little bit foolish, Naive, maybe it's a lot of foolish, like a scoffer. But the fruit of this lifestyle is that you end up, you end up in a pathway where you reject the word of the Lord. Why? Because you know better, you know more. You don't like what it says, it's too difficult. Now recognizing this, this obedience that he's talking about comes from a yielded heart that's been transformed. Lord, what do you have for me in this? Lord, what would you have me do in this relationship, in this situation, in this environment that I find myself in? How would you want me to step into it? This doesn't demand perfect obedience. None of us are capable of perfect obedience. And if you say, well, Lance, I, I'm trying to build my house on obedience, but so often I falter and fail. Yeah, that's the human condition we live in. So how do we walk in that, in submission to the Lord, in repentance to the Lord, the yielding that says, Lord, I know you're God and I know I'm not. So I yield to you. I yield to your leadership. Grow me. Show me what it looks like to do that. Because I know this, I have built my house too many times on the sand. It's a failure to take the Lord at what he said. He said he's going to do it. All right, so we're going to do it. He comes full circle and look at it. Did they understand? Look at verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Chapter 8, verse 1, when he came down from the mountain. If you go to the end of chapter 4, 
when it says Jesus goes up the mountain and a whole bunch of people followed him. Now we finish the sermon, one sermon, we finish the sermon, Jesus comes down and they follow him back down. But that word that they have there, the crowds were astonished. It's a great word because it talks about they continued in their amazement. That throughout this entire sermon, which I said probably 18 to 20 minutes, don't get too jealous, I know. Some of us have to teach longer. After 18 to 20 minutes, they walk back down the mountain and they're, what? What just happened? This guy is amazing. Some of them are thinking, this is terrible because I feel pretty good about not killing somebody, but I feel really bad because I hate a lot of people. And when Jesus said, hey, if you come to worship and you know that somebody, you travel three to four days to get to the temple and you get there and you know somebody has something against you, I want you to leave it there and I want you to go back three to four days, make it, try to make it right, and then come back and worship. And they're like, oi, what do I do with this? I don't, I don't have time for that. Certainly he understands that I don't have time to obey him. And so I think you got people that are walking down astonished and they're thinking in their mind like, oh, I don't, I don't even begin to know where to begin with this. I don't know what to do. And then I think you have some people that are probably talking like, can you believe he said that? He said that. What do we do with that? What does that mean? They continued in amazement. But here's the thing. He was teaching the one who one had authority, not scribes. They recognized that. They recognized because Jesus kept saying things like this. You've heard it said, but I tell you. And all of a sudden, you know what? You know all the scribes and the Pharisees were able to do? You've heard it said, you've heard it said, because they were the ones saying it. It was their attempt to chronicle the words of an eternal God who was there from the beginning that put all of this down for us, and they had to try to reduce it to something that those people could manage, something they could feel good about. And when Jesus spoke, he didn't sound like the scribes or the Pharisees. He wasn't trying to lower the bar. He wasn't trying to be one like, well, it was written back in Moses. No, he says it like, I am God. I am the authority. I am the one. I was present at creation. I am the one who sustains you. And they didn't know it yet, but he could have said, I am the one that's going to walk out of that grave. And they didn't see it. They didn't know it. But what they did know is he's different He's different when he teaches. He speaks as one having authority, as though he understands it. He grasps it. I can trust him. What a moment of time. Because that gospel of sin management is no good news at all. If you're here this morning and you're saying, I don't, I don't know what to do with this, because I feel like I've tried to climb the ladder my whole life, and I, I, I don't know what to do with the ladder, and it feels like every day I fall down a couple of more rungs. Here's the good news of the gospel. You can't climb the ladder, and the penalty for not being able to climb the ladder is eternal separation from God. The really great news is this. Jesus climbed the ladder, and he climbed all the way to the top, and he looked down and said, I climbed it on your behalf. You don't have to climb it. That's the good news of the gospel, because we were all separated. And this law that's perfect, that didn't need to be abolished, the problem was never the law. The problem was our separateness and rebellion against the Lord because we are so prone to building our house on the sand because we think we know better. The Lord said, I climbed the ladder for you so you don't have to. And that by believing in me, 
is that you get credit for climbing the ladder because we're seen through his righteousness. That's the gift. You mean you don't have to climb the ladder? No. Can you get off the ladder? You absolutely can get off the ladder because our Savior climbed the ladder for you. And you and I get the words like, come to me, all who are weary and need rest. That's not a ladder-like experience, is it? And that's what he did for you and me, that when he went to the cross, he paid the penalty for us not being able to climb the ladder. And then on day three, he walked out of that grave, conquering death, offering you and me life. If you want to know about, more about that Savior, grab anybody with one of the lanyards today. We'd love to talk with you about it. Because there's some things that we need to understand about this passage. For so long, I think every message I've ever heard on this passage was, was this, right? The storms come on life, and so we're the house, and uh, the house is us, and we live on this. And if our house is built on Jesus, then the storms won't maybe hit us. The storms still hit. The difference is the house stands. And it's not about every crisis, I don't think. Because I think if we follow meticulously through this, I think this is where we end up. Who is the builder? The builder is every one of us and how we invest our lives. Because we got a tale of two builders. One heard and was followed by action. One listened and was followed by inaction. I'm drawing a distinction there. What's the distinction? The best illustration I could come up with as I was wrestling through this was this. If you've ever been in an airport and you're sitting at your gate and you're sitting there and you're waiting for your flight to board and you think about hearing about flight such and such, such and such that's at the next or adjoining gate, you think, I don't need to hear that. And they're like, has been moved to another terminal. Those people get up and move, hopefully. You stay put because it doesn't apply to you. Now, if they call your flight and say, your flight's been moved, if you really hear, you get up and move to that gate. But there's so much in this world going on in an airport where you have the person saying, excuse the cart, and you hear the beeping, and people talking, and the celebration, and all that's going on in every flight that's being called, you have to tune stuff out. And we have to tune stuff out in this world. What we never tune out is the word of the Lord. We listen to him. We seek to hear that because the wise man hears and that demands action from us. The foolish man just listens and disregards it. I don't need what you're saying to me in this moment. What's the foundation? It's every person's response to Jesus' teaching. How do you respond to what the Lord is teaching you and me? Because the tale of two foundations, the rock is built on obedience to Jesus makes it clear in this parable, the sand is built on disobedience to Jesus. And if we're really being honest, there are parts of the foundation, right, that I've got some sand in, and it will always weaken the foundation. Then there's some things where there, there's rock. The integration of the two weakens it, correct? What's the house? I think the, account, the house is the accumulated ambitions, thoughts, words, and deeds of our life. What's, what are those things built upon? The rock or the sand? Are my ambitions, my thoughts, my words, and my deeds built on what Jesus is calling me to do, or is it built on my disobedience because I disregard what he has to say? What are you building your house with? What are your ambitions, thoughts, words, and deeds? Because the tale of two houses is the house, those ambitions, thoughts, words, deeds, and actions that are built in obedience to what he's calling you to do will withstand the storm. The house is built on the sand, a neglect 
or a disobedience to what the Lord is teaching in your words, actions, thoughts, words, and deeds, I messed that up, ambitions, it will be destroyed by the storm. That stuff gets washed away. So the question is, what's the storm? Well, it's the storm that every person will face. Every person faces it. A divine examination, both in the present, because we can choose our behaviors, but we can't choose our consequences, and in the future final judgment. We know the storm's here. We know the storm's coming. What is it? A divine examination of what? Our ambitions, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, and our actions. Storm comes either way. The question is, do those things withstand? Which is why this is so significant. We began with the idea that we can say, okay, physical structures are intended to stand. Your life is intended to stand. That is the goal. And the Lord in his goodness is telling us, hey, when you build your house, your ambitions, your words, your deeds, your actions, be really cognizant. Paul picks up the same idea in 1 Corinthians 3. According to the grace of God that was given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, someone else is building upon it. So let each one of us take care of how we build, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This whole thing is based on his teachings and who he is and what he said. If anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, okay, one way to build, or with wood, hay, and straw, another way to build, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. You mean at some point all of that stuff's going to be revealed? Yeah, because it's going to be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. What were your ambitions, works, deeds? What were they built upon? The Lord and what he said or called us to or not? If the work that anyone's built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. Going through fire, you're still saved. But, but the house, all those things get exposed for what they are. So the question for you and me has got to be this. What do we do? And if you say, Lance, all I've ever known is building on the sand, then we'd say, hey, we'd love to talk to you about the opportunity to get to know this Lord who loves you. He loves you. He's absolutely committed to you and your well-being. You can say, really? Yeah, he's really committed to you. He wants to know you. And if you felt some of those things where it felt like the sand was giving way underneath you, there's a better way. Grab somebody on our leadership team. We'd love to talk with you. Some of you might say, you know, I built on that rock a long time ago, but it, I haven't seen a lot of rock lately. Seems like all I build with is sand. It's not too late. You can come back. It's time to start building. And what I would tell you is this, if you know the Lord, Start obeying the things that you know that he says. And you might say, I don't know all of it. That's fine. None of us do. But we'll get there. Start obeying with what you know. And then let's start getting in the word together more. Let's get into this book. Oh, this is what the Lord has, has to say to me about this or that or this or that. And then let's start walking with him in those things. And then all of a sudden, watch that that rock begins to take shape under your attitudes, your words, your deeds, your thoughts, and your ambitions. It's a life worth living. Does he care? He absolutely cares. Matter of fact, he said it this way in John 10, the thief, not him, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I think he would say it to us in this room this way. I came that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. When something happens and comes in your life that steals, kills, and destroys, that's not from the Lord. That's not who he is. I've come that you may have life. You recognize 
He could have not preached this sermon and we would still be in behavioral Christianity like the scribes and the Pharisees. Lord, I'm trying my best today, man. It's a hard, hard day. We would have never known that he rescued us from behavioral Christianity if it weren't for the fact that he came and spoke into this because he said, there's a better way. And it's the only way you will ever get to the top of the ladder and I climb the ladder on your behalf so that I could know you and you could have a relationship with me. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.